Have you ever wondered if raw milk is truly safe? Why did we start pasteurizing it in the first place? Have our ancestors always drank milk? And what is the fermentation all about? And is it really necessary? In this episode, Allison and I will share some of what we have learned about raw milk over the past 10 years. We will share some of the rather shocking history of the industrialization of milk, and we will also share why raw living untampered with milk is considered a perfect food. You will walk away from this episode super excited about drinking raw milk, and you're probably going to want to buy a cow. Welcome to the Ancestral Kitchen Podcast with Allison, a European town dweller in central Italy, and Andrea living on a newly created family farm in Northwest Washington State, USA. Pull up a chair at the table and join us as we talk about eating, cooking, and living with ancient ancestral food wisdom in a modern world kitchen. Hello, Andrea. Hello, Alison. How are you? I'm really good. The sun's shining here today. It's a beautiful winter blue sky Italian oh, day. Love it. It's gorgeous, gorgeous. How are you? It's raining, but that's oh. fine. <laughs> it's <laughs> raining, but I'm okay. <laughs> no, it was actually really lovely when I went out this morning. It was um, warm. Everything's wet and muddy, um, but that's fine. Hmm, good. Good, good. Yeah, and yeah. Um, have you had breakfast yet today? No, but Kelsey, <clears throat> when I did an interview on Kelsey's podcast, mm. then she said we should link her podcast in the show notes, by the way. Um, yeah. She was like, why don't you just tell us what you had for dinner? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, We're supposed so to be last the last, night, thing you, last thing we ate, isn't it? That's which is true, which is true. I just got in the habit of breakfast and then we moved earlier and earlier. And then I didn't yeah. have breakfast anymore. Um, well, I still eat breakfast. People should know. But anyways, I just had chicken noodle soup. So one of our chickens that we'd roasted and I shredded all the meat off the bones. And these are just a couple leftover chickens from making dinner, basically. Mm -hmm. And then um, made broth out of the bones. So then the next day I just strained the broth out and I cooked onions and garlic and poured in all the broth and Yum. a bunch of cubed potatoes. And then while that was cooking, I just made a bunch of noodles, threw those in. So how did you make the noodles? Really simple. Um, these ones were, I guess you'd call it an egg noodle. So mm -hmm. it's a recipe that like normally is sourdough, but yeah, I didn't sour it. Okay. <laughs> Um, what a trend, me in a hurry. So <clears throat> I just mixed um four cups of flour and then I put in no three cups of flour and four eggs. And then I just kind of mixed it and kept adding water until it was, you know, until I could shape it into a really, you know, a dough ball. Yeah. So yeah, it's delicious. I just rolled it out on the counter and then cut it with a knife. We don't have a pasta roll or anything like that. So okay. Okay. Um, yeah, everything's just by hand. I'm going to have a go with a, um, a kind of a um, 
colander thing with holes in to try to make the um, her luschki, which is the oh, yeah. Slovakian yeah, dumplings that, that Naomi out. talked about. Um, oh. The podcast has gone out um, by the time Yay. this one goes out, but um, I haven't made the dumplings yet, although I will have, if that's not confusing mm, enough. Those will be good. <laughs> <laughs> sounds what did delicious. you have, yeah, I had heart, slow-cooked heart. We got oh, one yum. from Flavio, um, I think about two weekends ago, and I put it in the slow cooker as per my recipe, which people can find on my site. Yes. And then what I do afterwards is we eat the rest of it or a portion of it cold, and then I freeze about 50% of it normally in two or three chunks, and it freezes really well. And then when it's time, it comes out the freezer, and it is food for three or four days, just that frozen bit. Mm-hmm. So we're on the very end of this chunk of heart. I had um, that chopped up with some Romanesco cauliflower, which, do you know what Romanesco cauliflower is? Do you have those or not? Yeah, we do actually have those here. Yeah. Rob really yeah. likes them. He much prefers them to normal cauliflower. And there's loads yeah. of them in Tuscany. So we had Romanesco cauliflower, um, some sauerkraut, and then I made four spelt loaves this morning. I've taken to trying to make my sourdough in batches, in big batches. Okay. Um, And then organizing the freezer, which is tiny, well enough to fit them in. So I made four loaves this morning and I, it's just a beautiful, you know, when, when I've got a fresh loaf that um, I proofed Uh overnight in the fridge and then um, baked it up this morning and it was still warm with lard on it. Yum. That's perfect. So you mentioned Kelsey, who is one mm-hmm. of our patrons, and we, as of yesterday, we have another patron that I wanted to welcome on board before we dive into Yay. today's content. So welcome, Michelle. Welcome. Really nice to, to have you on our companionship level. And I yeah. sent out the private podcast feed to her this morning, so she'll be diving into all oh, of those awesome. old episodes to, to listen to and um, hopefully coming over onto the Discord channel. So we can chat more. Yes, I hope she gets on the Discord. It's crazy how much the private podcast is basically, you know, it's a it's a podcast now. <laughs> yeah, it's com- completely. It, I was, it was I just was this tiny little thing in the beginning, but yeah, when, when you took I that video, I, was like, back wow. through, I took a video and scrolled back through. I was like, wow, this is that's quite yeah. um, some information here. Really, there I really don't know is. if it's because we go off notes or we just get more opinionated on there or something but i <laughs> i feel like sometimes we accidentally put our best work up on that one yeah i agree you know when we sit down to record those ones um which is just the way it is but yeah yeah it's certainly certainly a really good exercise as well so i agree i agree yeah, that's fun so talking about um being opinionated i'm not what? sure Us? <laughs> you, you you on this episode <laughs> i'm i'm leaving the reins to you to um to express your opinion <laughs> we are going to be talking about a subject which is close to both of our hearts and very very fundamental to the tenets of ancestral food and um, western price Absolutely. and eating nourishing foods which mm-hmm. is raw milk and I know Uh, you've done a ton of research on this Andrea through the years and so I'm going to bow to your wonderful information that you've shared with me (laughs) over over the years and you want to now share with the listeners so where do you want to start 
Well, let's start with, I just want to start off by asking you, when did you start drinking raw milk and kind of what, what prompted you to do that? Yeah. Okay. Um, it was 2010, I think. I had to ask Rob about that this morning to be 100% sure. And he thinks it was 2010. And yeah. previously, neither of us had had a very good relationship with pasteurized milk. Mm-hmm. I didn't really know there was anything other than pasteurized milk, frankly, yeah. until I was, you know, um, 30 something. And Rob um, reacts to pasteurized milk by his skin basically flaking, almost like an, oh. a sort of a, an eczema reaction, you know, his skin on his face particularly goes yeah. red yeah. and itches and then it flakes. And so he had had, a, you know, a, a kind of a, he enjoys milk, but had, had a not very good relationship with it because whenever he drank it, he'd get this issue on his face. With me, it was more of an issue with my um, my throat and my sinuses, you know, the whole ENT area, and that when I drank pasteurized mm-hmm. milk, I'd just feel completely clogged up and I'd get sinus problems, I'd get congested. And so neither of us really liked milk because of that. And um, around that time, 2010, we were just coming out of being raw vegan, so we hadn't, neither of us had drunk milk or raw milk or pasteurized milk or anything like that for um, at least three years, if not longer than that. Wow. And the thing that kind of brought me out of raw veganism, like we talked about before, was the desire to um, bring my cycle back and have a, have a child. And it was Nourishing Traditions, the cookbook that led me there. And of course, I read about raw milk in that. And mm-hmm. I knew that I wanted to ferment it because I've read about the incredible benefits of fermented milk and how, you know, traditionally it had been used by cultures for centuries and centuries. And I knew from reading that book and believing in that book and feeling the depth of the wisdom in that book that I had to get raw milk. There was no way I was going to use pasteurised and because of my experience in the past. And there was a local supplier um, like a kind of community buying group of goat's milk um, in the hills around us. We were in Italy then, um, in a different part of Italy. And so we got some raw goat's milk and immediately started making kefir with it. Um, and then really never looked back. Rob never had the issues with his skin um, using drinking fermented milk. And I have never had the issues with congestion drinking fermented raw milk. So wow. it's just... It's been a transformation because I think both of us thought it was a food stuff we kind of wouldn't go back to because of our bad experiences. But right. it, it is a different food stuff. You know, the raw milk that we yeah. that we imbibe now, fermented, is a completely different food to pasteurized, yeah. unfermented milk. So it's like finding a new food, really. It was like finding a new uh, food. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. How and about you? Were you about the same time with Nourishing Traditions or... Yeah, actually, it's so funny. Um, So we switched to drinking. Sorry about the papers I'm moving over here. We switched to drinking low heat pasteurized milk or vat pasteurized milk in Mm. 2009. Mm. And um, I actually at that time wasn't even, I don't remember having any awareness really of drinking milk directly from the cow. I think I still had the Mm. assumption that... um, everybody just pasteurized it that's just like you cook potatoes you pasteurize milk right that's what I I thought Mm -hmm. and um but I understood 
the dangers of UHT ultra heat treated milk. Okay. So, and to some extent, I had a grasp of how um, unhealthy the farms were where these cows were kept. So I was buying milk from a local place that we have out here. Um, then I think it was 2011 or 2012 when we switched to raw mm-hmm. completely. Um, and yeah, been on raw ever since. So. What instigated that that switch in, in 2011? That, so if somebody wants to look in the show notes, <laughs> mm. there's a blog post I wrote back then. I had a blog, Dotal Anecdotes, Life as a Wife. That was my blog. <laughs> mm. And I wrote in there um, a post called, it was a it was a series I did called Practical Steps, and it was practical steps for, you know, getting your diet cleaner, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was called Practical Steps or Why We Bought a Cow. Really, we did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, when we moved to Virginia, I explained in there, every time we moved with the Navy, I had to very quickly reestablish our food supply, right? So in there, I wrote each of my big food windows like meat eggs produce you know dairy um i wrote what my goal was for it and um and how i found it so if somebody's moving i guess that might be a useful post (laughs) yeah yeah. but i believe i found her on this this cow share gal on Mm localharvest.com and i was i don't remember entirely why I picked raw I must have gotten some education at that point because I was pretty Mm -hmm. emphatic that I wanted raw milk I don't remember when exactly I encountered the education but um, our cow share host introduced me to a book called the untold story of milk they said that it would be it's just good reading for anyone who's drinking raw milk and this book was I believe this was also my introduction to Sally Fallon I see. Because she writes the foreword of this book. And I ended up contacting her and asking her if I could read a copy of Nourishing Traditions in the baby book to review. And she sent me both of those at that time. So um, that kind of took my education deeper. And well done, Sally, because I'm promoting her book to this day. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So we'll put the the um book you've just talked about in the show notes and i yeah i know that you've got a lot of other resources that you want to share with people which um yeah we'll there, sure there's a the lot of great too. resources that we can put in the show notes don't necessarily need to read them all out because then people just have to be scrambling to write them down anyways so mm-hmm. um yeah i'll put those in the show notes there's a couple books that are great if you want to understand why raw milk a couple books that are great if you want to use raw milk in your kitchen to produce all your dairy products at home and then there's also a couple of books that are excellent if you want to learn more about raising cows. Wonderful. We've got a few in each of those categories. Yeah. <clears throat> so. Okay. So let's let's move on then. And um, let's go down. I can see I can see you <laughs> want to talk about vested interests yeah. in milk, and there are a lot of those. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let's, let's, let's go down this this farm road. Okay. So raw milk. I I just want to answer the questions for people in this episode is raw milk truly safe? Why do people use the term a perfect food for raw milk? Can pregnant women drink it or infants and babies? 
why did we even start pasteurizing it and when did that begin? Okay. Is raw milk ancestral? Have we always had it? Do we have evidence of it throughout human history and different cultures around the globe? Those are some of those qualifications for ancestral foods is that they're present in multiple different places. And then also I want to touch on what is the whole fermentation thing about and why? Okay. So first I'll start off with the, the vested interest. So when it comes to raw milk, it's, it has become, it, it went from being an accepted part of life that just existed everywhere to a political marketing money driven um engine if you will mm-hmm. so <clears throat> who has everything to lose when it comes to raw milk um and who has everything to gain you hear people say this in the food world all the time follow the money and almost always there are farmers who are making very little margin of profit and working very, very hard, but very, very dedicated, you know, almost ideologically to getting good food into people's hands. Yeah. And then you look on the flip side and who's trying to put their foot on his neck. It's somebody with almost an ideological passion for income alone as separated from the good energetic exchange that is supposed to produce income and producing things as cheaply as possible and as quickly as possible and as much as possible. And the nutrition of that item never even comes into the conversation. Mm -hmm. So I know you've seen this a gazillion times, Allison. So who has everything to lose? The farmers who are producing raw milk for us, you know, people in the United States, especially, um, but really in countries all around the world, it happens. Um, they put their farms and their livelihood on the line to sell their milk to a society that has been taught to be heavily litigious because we're now suing typically these huge deep pocket companies with like, yeah, you know, lawyers on retainer and on staff and things like that. And then people take that and they they want to get their food from a little farm and then they sue a little farm. And, you know, this seven generation family farm is like sunk because of one customer. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so it's really hard for farmers to sell food in general, you know, because of the litigiousness of everybody, but that we have, there's so much video footage of Amish farms being raided by SWAT teams or farmers who are illegally transporting milk across state lines, watching while officials are just pouring thousands of dollars worth of valuable milk into drainage ditches on the side of country roads. And it just, it looks unnatural and shocking. And people who aren't in the world of milk don't even believe you when you say it. And they're like, what? There's no way. But you have to and see. I think it's important to to kind of express the difference because when I first saw the state of what raw milk was like in, in the US, I was shocked because uh-huh. I'm yeah. European yeah. and the law is not the same over over here. And, you know, to see those things happening in the US yeah. coming from the background I come from, which we'll, we'll talk about later, it was incredible yeah. you know that that SWAT teams would right. go in and raid people <laughs> who were just producing milk you know yeah it, and and it's I, it's a it's a form of signaling right because everybody sees that mm-hmm. and they go well shoot I'm not getting in that industry yeah. 
either as a customer or as a seller, you think, you know, like, like you, you pretty much have to um, offer your firstborn to some farmers to be able to get some raw milk. Cause, and they're going to do it. Like they're going to, they're wearing a mask. They've got like a voice, con- you know what I mean? Like, like nobody wants to to do this because it, it, um, it's just ridiculous. And, and it's all messages being sent by people who are making money and you say, oh, no, no, no. These are lawmakers who said this. Yeah. Well, why do you think the lawmakers said this? No lawmaker sitting in DC has any clue about raw milk, but somebody comes and sits at their desk and says, oh, geez, you know, we really should make something illegal. And then they say, oh, geez. Yeah. And I'm also going to contribute a couple million to your next campaign. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. it's, it's not, it's not surprising that this is how it works when that's the way it's set up. So mm-hmm. we, we've been told that big food companies, this is something we've heard over and over, they can, they have these calculations or, you know, so many people can die before they have to go in and actually change a process because there's, there's a breaking point where, you know, paying off the families actually saves you more money. And um, is that true? I don't know. I've heard it many times, but I couldn't go through and confirm it for you. But I do know that if you've tried to visit a CAFO farm, um, which you probably can't because those places are locked down like Fort Knox and mm-hmm. they don't let anybody in there, um, especially cameras and reporters. But they these are centers of iniquitous disease breeding and the regard for health and life is nominal at best. I mean, literally nobody cares. So it wouldn't be surprising to me if this was part of the um, morality of farming. So who has everything to gain by raw milk being illegal? So in the rest of this episode, you will see it's not, it's not little farmers. Yeah. Um, if you read the Weston A. Price Journal, which Allison and I referred to multiple times and Allison is published in, um, then if you look in the fall 2022 journal on page 84, she had um Sally Fallon has um Pete Kennedy publishes raw milk updates in there. And the in most recently, a couple months ago here in the US, in California, the raw butter ban was upheld by appellate court. This is this is a food that has no history of ever making anyone sick. Yet the courts upheld the ban. There was, you know, they had nothing to present as evidence as to why it should be upheld, but they upheld the ban. Meanwhile, alcohol is legal. Yeah. <laughs> and if you think about it, it doesn't even that I'm not saying that alcohol should be illegal. I'm not mm-hmm. saying raw butter should be illegal. I'm saying it's confusing that raw butter is illegal and has never harmed anyone and alcohol Yeah. There's it's killed thousands virtually, and millions of people probably. <laughs> yes. Virtually not a pris- person in prison in the US that won't say that alcohol was part of the problem. Like if people were like drinking raw milk and then running out and killing their families or driving down the road and killing people on the road, people would be like, raw milk, it's the devil, <laughs> but it's alcohol. So we allow it. Yeah. So by the way, our ad is on page 108, Allison, of that journal. Oh, <laughs> if nice. somebody looks in there, you'll see us. So who stands to gain by a small farmer not being able to sell butter in interstate commerce? It's not the farmer who gains and it's not the customer because customers want it and no customer has ever been harmed by it. So how could it be a problem for the customer? There's bans like this on different types of soap or places to sell it or cheese, small producers of value-added foods like 
dried herbs or ferments. There's bans on raw milk and small farm butchering processes and all sorts of things. The only party who stands to benefit consistently is this the food lobby that mm-hmm. is usually made up of um, heads or former heads of big food companies who have tons of stock in the company and go to D.C. and put the pressure on for different regulations to be made. It's not that these regulations are being made by people who are just earnestly trying to get the most nutritional, dense food into people's bodies. So in the same report, uh, Mr. Kennedy also reported about the New Zealand farmers who are facing prosecution and conviction from a regulation statute or something that was changed all the way back in 2015 Mm. for selling raw milk without checking all the regulatory boxes. But what's interesting to me in this is that the milk the farmers are selling is the same. It has always been, but the regulation and the boxes to check kept being expanded. Like you need to have this stamped on this product and you need to pull this and rotate this. And, but the milk is still the same that it's always been. And they've, they basically made the regulations to the point that a small farm with an ethical humane herd of cattle, you know, like some, somebody once said, if every farm could just have 50 cattle, then they wouldn't have the disease issues, right? But all those small farms will no longer be profitable in New Zealand. So those farmers are just dropping out like flies. Yeah. So why we, we get that there's different people who have vested interest in raw milk and there's different people who are willing to put everything on the line to be able to get it into people. But why do we care about drawing raw milk? And why do we want to drink it raw in the first place? Yeah. So I can see (laughs) that the next thing that um, we've got on our long list to talk about is the the claim made by many people that drinking Mm -hmm. milk isn't something that humans should be doing. You know, no other animal drinks milk past infancy. And I remember... During my time as as a vegan, many people um, throwing that around, and I know that oh, you've really? got quite a lot to say about it. So, tell us tell us your view on that. When I first heard Allison talking about boza, the fermented drink made of millet, that's a household name in Turkey, I felt as if I was being transported back to a bazaar in the Ottoman Empire or traveling the Silk Road on the back of a camel, and I knew I wanted to taste it. Boza is fizzy, sweet, tart, and it's full of probiotics. You can drop it into your smoothies, spoon it on top of your breakfast, or drink it in the traditional way they still do in Istanbul, topped with cinnamon and toasted chickpeas. Fermented millet drinks were first made in that region of Europe in the 8th century BC. And as with all of Allison's courses, she's gone above and beyond in research and experimentation and testing on Rob and Gabe and given us an easy way to recreate the goodness in her own homes. If you'd like a fun and tasty way to get more probiotics into your life, bring her into your kitchen and have her walk you through how to bring this ancestral, dairy-free, gluten-free fermentation recipe with her amazing Boza video course. Head to www.ancestralkitchen.com slash Boza, B-O-Z-A, to check out the video course. And happy fermentation! 
Okay. So yeah, the the phrase no other animal drinks milk past infancy. And I would add to that, yes, true, sure, correct. No other animal has written the works of Shakespeare. No other animal has painted the Mona Lisa. No other animal has built the Colosseum. So let's recognize our differences from these mammals and be glad of it. <laughs> um, we also have opposable thumbs and we can actually harvest milk. So the skills and the will to domesticate and keep animals at our whim, this is a uniquely human thing. And I can tell you, many animals will guzzle down milk if they can get their paws and claws on it. And on a farm, uh, chickens, pigs, dogs, and cats all eagerly wait for leftover sour milk. And you never have wasted milk on a farm. And in fact, a lot of times in history, farms, main people would mainly harvest the milk, take the cream and give all the skim milk to the animals. Um, but our dogs and cats have all drank raw milk their entire lives, no digestive issues. And people said, you can't give milk to dogs and cats, look at diarrhea. Mm -hmm. But I think they were referring to pasteurized milk because our animals have always had it and they love it. Yeah. And I have, I have also seen our adult cat nurse off of our dog <laughs> multiple wow. times. Yeah. And people say, oh, yeah, that's a thing. When I said, what in the world is going on? And people said, yeah, that's a thing um, where another animal will nurse off of another one for bonding. So do we do see milk throughout all of history? <clears throat> um, obviously, it wasn't there, so I can neither confirm nor deny, but we seem to have evidence that cows have been domesticated as early as 8000 BC in the Fertile Crescent Valley, which, of course, is the foodie center of the world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Never every everything you're like oh everything starts okay everything <laughs> <laughs> yeah so cultured and fermented dairy appear all over the globe in many traditional ancestral diets I didn't even list them because they're, they're it's like just basically say all of them <laughs> mm -hmm. we don't see unfermented milk as a dietary norm literally until modern Western civilization and. The degree to which we have unfermented milk now, the reason why anybody even knows what, you know, plain unfermented milk is, is because we have refrigeration. Yeah, of course. And I would also note, of course, as you'll see as we continue, that pasteurization and refrigeration were two of the means people used to continue that. Okay. So a couple, when you say fermented milk, I honestly, people gag. They're like, oh. You know, I don't know what they're thinking. So let me list off a few fermented milk products. Yogurt, cheese, clabber, curd, whey, creme fraiche, kefir, kumis, sour cream, cream cheese, which is just strained sour cream, labna, which is just strained kefir, cultured buttermilk or cultured butter. Mm. Literally, the list goes on. Lacto-fermentation is the process where lactic acid producing bacteria, so like when you put your kefir, scobies, your grains in, mm -hmm. those are bacteria um, that produce lactic acid. So that begins to digest both milk sugar, which is lactose, and milk protein, which is casein. And mm -hmm. interestingly, Allison, I don't know if you've noticed this, but when people say they have problems with milk, they often refer to one of those two things, difficulty mm -hmm. digesting those two things, yeah. which in ancestral tradition that dictates that those should be broken down anyway. Yeah. I mean, we see here on, on the shelves and shops, lactose-free milk, 
And yet, if you read Same. Um, ancestral Same. literature about what kefir does to milk, you'll find that if you leave it for long enough, the lactose mm-hmm. just doesn't really exist anymore. So it is lactose-free yeah. and would have yeah. been if, if it was used, if kefir was used to ferment it as it would have been for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Absolutely. Mm. <clears throat> so once the bacteria have produced enough lactic acid it's literally the same as when you watch your sauerkraut so once they've produced enough lactic acid to inactivate all putrefying bacteria because of course everything exists you know if 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 any organism dies or any organic material sits right it eventually will start to break down right with putrefying bacteria so so what lactic acid bacteria are doing is they're preserving this by now neutralizing the putrefying or inactivating the putrefying bacteria. So then milk is preserved for, from spoilage for days or weeks. And if you add refrigeration on top of that, keeping something cool, mm. I've kept kefir in my fridge for well over six months and yogurt for well over three months. I know because when when our cow is dried up, it's four months at a time. Yeah, and I would make a ton of kefir and yogurt and we would literally eat it up until she was back into milk again. Wow. It was, and it was perfect. And and I've actually got a Greek yogurt that I've kept. At this point, I don't even want to open it because I'm like, well, now I kind of want to see how long it's going to go. So I've got a <laughs> Greek yogurt sealed in a jar for over a year in my fridge. Wow. I mean, it looks perfect. So <clears throat> cultures around the globe drink all different kinds of milk too. But guess which milk is the most popular after cow's milk? cows is the top but then what's next hmm. well in, in our house I, it's goat's milk for sure yeah <laughs> i totally did not know this i i was just doing the research for the podcast right and mm. i figured probably goats was the second most popular mm. um but globally it the second most popular is actually water buffalo <laughs> goats oh, are like gosh. number four or something on the list wow. so i know but yeah i guess that makes sense so people use cow's milk camel's yeah. milk mare's milk my dad's had yeah. mare's milk when he went to Mongolia. Um, yeah, the water buffalo, sheep, yaks, donkeys, and in very cold areas where, um, where you know, cows and things don't thrive so well, people milk reindeer. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah it's very fascinating. And why? Let, let's talk about the nutritional benefits. Okay. Now we, I think, I think we get that people drank it throughout history. So why is milk called a perfect food? So since very ancient times, milk has been used as medicine. And if you go to realmilk.com, they have a tab that says health. And when you click that, there's a little drop down menu and it says, one of them says milk as medicine. Okay. Um, I think I got that right in my head. And you can read more about this if you want to see like who and what. Um, and But there are even milk cures used up through the 1800s. And even um, Sally Fallon has cited a guy who's doing it today in a hospital where patients are fed a diet purely made up of raw milk. Mm-hmm. Milk is mentioned 50 times in the Old Testament of the Bible. And each time it's mentioned, it is in the context of a spiritual blessing. Milk was a sign of abundance and wealth and stability and comfort and nutrition. And Alice and I, they always say how wealthy somebody was by, oh, he had so many cows. And, you know, like it's always on the yeah. list. And I remember um, when I met a friend from 
Africa and she told my dad, oh, your daughters are all so, so skilled. You know, they can all cook and they're all such, so good. She goes, you would have had so, you had many cows. <laughs> like you would be so wealthy now from marrying off all these skilled daughters. And my dad was like, funny here, it's the opposite. I have to pay for the wedding. <laughs> but um, Lexi also said, I think we've talked about this before, where she said mm -hmm. when she she was eating vegan for a while, thinking, you know, trying like most of us who eat vegan, you know, just earnestly seeking after, you know, health and ecological harmony and things like that. Um, then she was just reading her Bible one night and and I guess she was reading the Old Testament and she, after about the 50th time, she read the land of milk and honey and she was like, why would God say that your blessing was milk and honey if you weren't supposed to eat them. And that was kind of how she came to her conclusion that she should explore raw milk. And then she went down, you know, she found Sally Fallon after that. So <clears throat> um, fermentation also produces beneficial changes. So like we said, it breaks down the casein or the milk protein, which is one of the most difficult proteins to digest. Mm -hmm. Vitamin B and vitamin C are shown to increase during fermentation. Allison, I was thinking this was another one of those examples, like with soaking your grains or fermenting your vegetables, where the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, including yeah. your food budget. Completely. So maybe you've already purchased milk, you know, vat pasteurized or raw milk, you know, low heat or something like that. Um, and you can ferment it and actually, in the privacy of your home, produce more nutrition, you know? Mm. So with milk or grains or veg you, that you've already bought, the fermentation makes them more valuable, more nutritional, more bioavailable. Um, <clears throat> regular consumption of cultured dairy products also lowers cholesterol, presumably because you're getting what you need and your body doesn't have to produce it, I'm assuming. And it protects against bone loss. Um, they provide uh, beneficial bacteria and lactic acid to your digestive mm -hmm. tract, which... what something, you know, of course we know that that's good for digestion, but this also keeps pathogens at bay and it helps guard you against infectious illness and aids in digestion, not just of the milk, but all the food you eat yeah. is better digested when you have those present. And I've seen a few um, studies cited in different places where they said um, that there's plenty of evidence that if you're eating fermented milk products a couple times a week than if you are occasionally having non-fermented milk, your body's still breaking it down because it has all of the um, bacteria okay. present to do that, which is fascinating. Mm. So living real milk also contains many vitamins, which we'll go over in a later section, as well as 60 functional enzymes, beneficial bacteria, Yes, even before you ferment it, there's beneficial bacteria in milk, which is why you can spontaneously ferment milk without inoculants. Right. Mm -hmm. Milk also contains all 22 essential minerals, including calcium, chlorine, magnesium, phosphorus, potassium, sodium, sulfur, zinc, iodine, and more. And milk also provides a special companion enzyme for each mineral that aids in your body's digestion and absorption of it. Wow. So milk is a I didn't stunningly that. perfect food. That's incredible. Yeah. It is. Um, milk also contains the three macronutrients, butterfat, protein, and carbohydrate in the form of lactose, which is a carbohydrate that does not tend to spike insulin. So 
you can literally live on it. <laughs> Which is why, like, the Greeks had these milk cures where you would just drink milk. <laughs> um, and milk culturing, of course, is, as you know, Allison, because you live in Italy, yeah. is an artisanal skill. And to this day, we nominally honor the regions where certain cheeses were developed or different things, you know, cultured out of milk by calling them like Parmigiano Reggiano, which is, you know, an area. And of course, only true parm can come like like that's the only place you can get true Parmesan, even though we call similarly made cheeses. And isn't it amazing when you just you think about, for example, the cheeses that um, exist around the world yeah. to think that each of those individual cultures each of those individual like areas mm -hmm. of the land and or towns or communities sometimes because sometimes even the recipes and the type of cheese mm -hmm. is just dedicated to one town and yeah. comes up with their own way of fermenting it and yes. really respects that milk that much and and it's been part of their life that much that they've created their own cheese and there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cheeses around the world like that so from many that it is remarkable skill. Yeah, it just it yeah. it blows your mind when you when you think about it because each of those was developed by real people taking yeah. milk which yeah. would not have been pasteurized when it started and culturing it and making it into right. something that would last and something that would have, you know, extra bacteria in it and be more nutritious and would be able to feed them throughout the rest of the year when they didn't have fresh milk available. It just it's yeah. amazing. It's remarkable. And it's making it more digestible and it's helping them eat everything else they need to eat. And in a subsistence, you know, life, if you can increase the nutritional value of anything by any fraction, it yeah. can be the difference between life and death. So it's yeah. it's really important. And so it's such beautiful, you know, what we've just what you've just described about how it's been used throughout history, what fermenting mm -hmm. does to it. It just makes me think, where, where did we start with pasteurizing milk? And how did we go from thousands and thousands and thousands of years like that to where we are right. now? How, how did this happen? Well, as, so as you and I have talked about on the episode or on other episodes, when, like when we talked about bread, we talked about this to some length. <clears throat> We went from primarily throughout all of human history, we have all been an agrarian society, right? Our religious festivals, sacred days, um, everything, um, you know, all the parables in the Bible, everything revolves around the agrarian calendar. Hmm. And then we come into the industrial era. And this is where the balance for the first time in human history starts to shift. So <clears throat> in the industrial area, air era, um, you know, steam engines, all these things starts to grow and boom. Factories are being multiplied in cities and people are bucketing out of farms to go to what they perceive as a better life in the city, or at least the promise of a better life. Mm -hmm. And let me just say right here, I, I don't say what they perceive as a better life to be sarcastic about farming. Farming was 
hard. Farming has always historically been like a knife's edge. You know, one, a cow goes down and you're just, that's it. You're done. You know, um, <clears throat> that's why when we talked on that one episode, Allison, where we said you could have the best of both worlds, I think we're ta- it was the episode called The Easy Way. Yeah, I remember. And there's, there's things, I, I just feel like, like farming could not, couldn't be more perfect than it has the ability to be right now. We have movable electric fences. We have pipe that we can move water in. You know, we have even trucks that we can move animals if we need to, right? Like it couldn't be better than it is right now. And um, it wasn't always that way. And I don't want to, um, as Joel says, don't be too hard on our ancestors because we don't know what it was like. And they weren't living, you know, on an Instagram farm. And then they're like, you know what? I don't like this anymore. I'm going to go live in a flat and work in a factory. I mean, if you read Karima's book, we interviewed Karima a while back on the podcast. And you, you... (laughs) read the stories of these women and you know these women were still alive when the book was recently published it wasn't that long ago and the incredible poverty and incredible Mm -hmm. difficulty yes physical um difficulty of their farming you can understand why in the 1950s when Italy had an economic boom they all wanted to go to to work in the the Fiat factory you know up north because it was incredibly hard. Yeah. Yep. And um, tenant farming and, you know, serfs and peasants and yeah. people, you know, farming for a for a lord and landlord and things like that. You know, it, it, there was, it, it is, I, I never want to broadly say anything that like would give an impression that we think these people were, were making a bad choice or something. Um, so people were leaving their farms and moving into cities and what's interesting is if you look at the U S census, I don't know about Europe, Allison, I I don't know how you guys, what, like, I don't know how it works over there, but we have a census that goes out every couple of years. Right. Right. And then every, after 50 years, the census becomes public information. So in 1800 farming accounted for 90% of the occupations that people had in the U.S. And as I was saying, this is, you know, when the Industrial Revolution was just really, no pun intended, gaining steam. And then in 1900, 100 years later, that number had dropped to 40%. So now 40% of people were farmers. And now... Today in the U.S., that number has dropped so much; it's not even a line item anymore. Gosh. Like it's such a small fraction of a percent that it doesn't even make the list. And it used to be ninety percent, and you cannot—you just cannot flip that that drastically and expect to still be producing the same quality of food that once it took 90% of the population to produce. And now you have like a fraction of a percent of the population producing. So all of these people, these 90% of these people grew up with probably a cow or some, you know, some 
animals on their farm and the cow next door and they milked every morning and they had milk every day. And now they're used to having milk and they believed it was critical for their health. And mm. now they're living in a flat in the city. Where are they going to get their milk from? So it's going to have to get trucked in or it's going to get shipped in by train or um, brought in, you know, in bottles. How will you do this when milk spoils so quickly? 1914 is when the first milk truck in the U.S. was um, put into use. So it was pretty, pretty early on. Um, they were, I know milk was moved on trains before, but it, it's, again, milk is highly perishable. <clears throat> Because it, because it is a perfect food. I mean, that's why it's perishable. We should make note of that. Foods that are highly perishable tend to be perfect because they are made to be easily digested and assimilated, which also means that, you know, putrefying bacteria can digest and assimilate them if you leave them. Yeah. So 90% of the people were raising the food before. Then it was 40%. Now it's less than that. So we have less people raising more food. And this is where the early versions of the modern CAFO were, were born. So that's confined animal feeding operation. With fewer people raising the cows, less attention being given to the cows. You know, like, Allison, if you're milking 100 cows, mm. you know, you don't give it the same attention and you're not going to be like, oh, there's a sore on your teeth. Let's, mm -hmm. let's take care of you. You know, like <clears throat> cows were literally being suspended in slings because the cow couldn't even stand to be milked. <laughs> like it's ridiculous. You know, it brings to um, mind what um, Patrick Holden um, said to me when we did the interview with him a few episodes mm -hmm. back about his wife who basically runs their very small dairy herd in Wales and she said you know we're one of the herd we go to yeah, them and we 100%. milk them but they see us as one of them you know that's how intimate and close we are with them and you think yeah. you know when you take um cow herds or any other animal herds to the size that the confined animal feeding operation does you just, you can't be one of the herd. You know, you're there to get the milk well, out, you, to sell it, to get the money. And you, like you said, yeah. you can't care in the same way about no. those creatures and their hygiene and what's happening to them. It's just completely in different. In a way, I'm thinking about what, what she said. And by the way, that's a really good episode. If anyone hasn't heard the interview with Sir Patrick Holden, it's really good. But... um, um. They are part of the herd, I guess, and they're just getting as sick and sickly as the cows were yeah. because <clears throat> you cannot have a culture that abuses and causes the suffering of creatures on such a vast scale that continues. The culture cannot continue to then treat humanity with um, the degree of respect it, des it, it deserves. And and uh, sometimes that argument is used in the vegan community, like, well, if you, um, you know, look how cruel you are to the animals, um, we should be nice to animals, just like we're nice to humans. But I think actually it's almost, almost slightly reversed where your view of humanity and the value of human life can drop so low that, you know, animals are just, they're like nothing. And we can, you know, if if you're selling a milk product, Allison, where you don't even care if it's 
causing osteoporosis in my bones because you pasteurized it to the point of acidity and you had to pasteurize it because it was so pathogenic that you couldn't actually feed it to me lawfully. Mm. You don't care about me. And so then why would you care about the yeah, animals? Okay. Yeah, that the milk was coming? You're just extracting money from me and you're extracting milk from the cows. Um, and it it's it's where we saw a, the health problems start to develop. So the in, instead of roaming the grass and being pastured and getting milked in a barn every morning and all that sort of, you know, as we use the term bucolic <laughs> mm-hmm. sort of just beautiful agrarian image, um, the animals are being crowded, packed in, onto, you know, um, stone floors, wooden floors, concrete floors, depending on the area you're in. They're being fed junk. <clears throat> People figured out that, you know, of course, everybody living in town was fairly miserable. So they're drinking a lot of alcohol. And so then they realized, hey, all this mash left over at the distilleries would be perfect for feeding to cows and, and a starving cow will eat it. So they're feeding swill. They're called swill cows um, or rotting food or as happened in Britain in the 1980s and 90s, Allison, <clears throat> they're feeding dead cows to cows. Yeah, They're feeding dead cows to their herbivore sisters a cow's not even a carnivore and they're feeding dead cows and you it's not considered good practice on most farms to feed like to like if that makes sense Mm. um and this is where that's probably traditional wisdom i'm assuming because this is where the cows developed cannibalism disease the same disease the the cow version of what humans get when humans um, participate in horrible things like cannibalism, just bovine spongiform encep- mm. encephalopathy or mad cow disease, which is easier to say. Mm-hmm. And to this day, cows in these dairy farms, not everyone, but in CAFO dairy farms, it can be fed junk like um, leftover rotting pastries from bakeries. So the cows were so, so sickly, like I said, they couldn't even always stand up. Um, the people handling the cows and the milk were also sick and sickly. They had various, you know, sanitation-induced <laughs> diseases like, you know, typhoid and things like that that were rampant in these crowded, moist, unhealthy areas. People weren't washing their hands. That wasn't even a thing. And they weren't sanitizing containers the way we would sanitize them today. And the milk from the cows, you know, we just described how perfect food is. And and do you know why milk has all those amazing minerals and things like that? Because cows eat minerals. Yeah. <laughs> like they're eating grass that is growing in soil, you know. But when you take a cow out of that environment where she's converting all those nutrients into goodness... Um, she will, for one, she'll cannibalize herself, just like, a, you know, Allison, you remember, like, I'm sure you read about this when you were pregnant. If you don't have enough calcium for the baby, if you're not eating enough calcium for the baby, your body goes, great, we're just going to take what you have. And you can get a pregnancy-induced osteoporosis because your body will eat its own bones to make sure the baby has a skull, you know? Um, but cows are trying technically to produce milk for a calf, right? So their body will will go through a lot 
uh, of harm, basically, mm. from trying to produce milk without the nutrition input that the cow needs. Um, the milk from the Sewell cows was so pale and blue that you couldn't even make butter or cheese with it. And I think you mentioned this, Allison, in another episode where people would add like chalk or starch or plaster to to milk to make it look white like everybody remembered milk should look from the farm. Uh, people mixed in eggs and molasses just to make it palatable. And amidst all of this, so you have people, you know, typhoid outbreaks in New York because people are are sick and they're handling milk and and they're putting it in unclean containers and shipping it from farms into town in an era where refrigeration is like an idea and um people had there was unclean farms and there was and there was clean farms but who knew which one was which because you're in the city and they're out in the country and even if it's only 20 miles away you're not going that far in those days right <clears throat> so amidst all this chaos the food and drug administration was born so food no longer was being produced right next to you where you could see it and under the watchful eye of all the customers and being distributed promptly in the immediate vicinity where also, Allison, as you and I know, if something is wrong with food, when it's only distributed locally, you immediately catch it and yeah. you cut it off at the source and you can fix the problem. Whereas when, you know, you see this like, People died in seven different states, and it turned out to be from cantaloupe that came from a farm in Iowa and was mm. contaminated. But because it's in seven different states, it took a year and a half for people to figure mm. out what the problem mm. was, you know. <clears throat> so nobody could see how unhealthy the cows were, and people knew that milk was making them sick, but people wanted milk because they knew that they needed milk. And so then the outcry for safety began, and then that was the era of administration of regulations. I think what's important, and, one of the things that's important about what you've just said is true of uh -huh. like every type of food. We don't yeah. see it. You know, if we, yeah, when we have had our food locally, if we do have our food locally, all our sources of food, you know, milk, meat, vegetables, mm -hmm. we get to see what happens to those things. We get to see if someone's spraying it yeah. or something or if someone's treating their animals badly or what happening to the chickens. But the way that the industrial food system has changed our food is that we don't see anything anymore. So we, we have no idea what's going on. And also we don't have to take yeah. responsibility for it because, you know, if something's yeah. happening to some cows 300K um, or 300 miles away from us, then we don't see it. It's not our business, you know. Well, everyone's busy anyway. No. Then we just get on with our life. Whereas in the past, before that, we had to see it because it was our livelihood. It was around us. It was our cow, you know, and therefore we had to care for that cow. Um, and the FDA being being born, like you're saying, amidst all right. everything, that mess that you've just described, basically right. is a license for us not to not to see anymore. Someone else apparently That's actually, is seeing. Yeah, it's, it's funny you say that because it's actually exactly what it was. It was also a license to not have to solve the problem as we'll mm. discover when we get just a little bit farther down. Okay, carry on. Would you like more support to help you eat, cook and live ancestrally? If so, come and check out our community at patreon.com forward slash ancestral kitchen podcast. We've got so many goodies over there that will help guide, inspire and support you in this journey we're taking together. 
There's our exclusive podcast where Andrea and I talk more intimately about what's happening in our kitchens and lives. There are so many after-show bonuses, downloads, extra audios and resources. We have a forum where you can ask and answer questions. And we even host a monthly chat where we get together and talk all the ancestral kitchen things. We love cooking and eating this way. And this community and library of resources is what we would have wanted when we started out. Check out www.patreon.com forward slash ancestral kitchen podcast to get started. So I I think it's worth noting, lest we look back and say, oh, those people to this day, money still talks in, in this way. Like the administration of regulations cannot replace morality. And you can say, okay, you have to you have to produce it this way but that doesn't mean that people will be producing it properly so in 1973 there was the in the US there was a terrible case of polybromylated biphenyl which is a toxic fire retardant chemical being mixed into livestock feed by accident and then distributed throughout Michigan so Michigans were buying the feed and they're feeding it to their animals and cows immediately started dying and then others became very sick. So the layers of bureaucracy and corporate malfeasance, those prevented the detection of the mix-up for nearly a year. So, so people are like, why are cows dying? They have no idea. During that time, the milk from those cows, which contained high levels mm of polybromylated biphenyl were still being sold. Thousands of sick animals culled from these herds were sold for meat. By the time, I just, I can't even imagine how frustrating it must have been. Like, I literally cannot imagine. But by the time the cause of the problem was discovered, 9 million people had been poisoned with PBB. It's just absolutely insane. And the discovery of the problem is not where it ended. Because um, Edward Chen, who was a writer for the Detroit News and wrote PBB, An American Tragedy, he said that the incident was a shameful example of how the government not only failed to protect and help people, but instead inflicted further suffering. Mm. Even after the astonishing blunder became public, Government, university, and corporation officials steadfastly downplayed the significance of the accident. They consistently misread and ignored information that came pouring forth in the aftermath of the mix-up. These officials even ridiculed the farmers, accusing them of poor animal husbandry when their prize-winning registered herds sickened and died, and later accusing them of being hypochondriacs and malingerers when they complained about their own ill health, instead of acting decisively to contain the contamination. The state pursued an undeviating course of suppression, obfuscation, and outright deception in order to delay the emergence of the true proportions of the calamity, as each nightmarish prediction by the alarmists became reality. 
and as PBB spread throughout Michigan and beyond. Such stonewalling efforts prolonged by years human exposure to the chemical, Michigan became a vast test tube of 9 million human beings. And if you think that kind of behavior has ended, you're living in a fantasy world. (laughs) So let's move on to... To Louis Pasteur and what what he did because yeah, I'm keeping so, my eye on the time and we're we're an hour okay. in and there's still so much to share. Still. All right, let's hit let's hit pasteurization. Yeah. So so Louis Pasteur wasn't he wasn't he's famous because of milk pasteurization, but that's actually not what he wasn't trying to make milk safe at the time. He was developing the in the 1850s. Um, he was commissioned to find out why wine Francis wine was spoiling, and he discovered that he could that there was microbes and that he could um, neutralize them, kill them by heating it for the right time and temperature. So then pasteurization, this method, was applied to milk in 1882 because the sick milk from the sick cows was transporting sickness, (gasps) including tuberculosis and typhoid, as we mentioned before, into the cities. So rather than address the issue of why sickness was suddenly appearing in milk when for thousands of years it wasn't, the solution was presented to cook the sick milk to kill the microbes. Note that pasteurizing doesn't remove pus and microbes from unhealthy animals. And remember, over 40% of the animals that milk comes from um, in these factories suffer from mastitis, which that that could mean pus and blood even getting into the milk. And it's being sold, obviously. So pasteurizing doesn't remove the pus and microbes. It just kills them, leaves them dead in the milk, ready to pour into your bowl of cereal. So imagine if Allison in Britain, instead of ceasing the feeding of dead cows to their sisters, we instead tried to find a way to continue to treat the resulting toxic meat product. Imagine if you were a person who lived in you know, some kind of chronic pain, and instead of unearthing the root cause of the pain, you just took pain medication to mask it. Or if you couldn't sleep, and instead of studying the metabolic root causes, you just took drugs to knock yourself out. Imagine if we were a nation or or a globe sick and dying from the toxic food imitation products being placed in front of us. And rather than try to resolve the issue of the food, we just experimented with new drugs and new cleanses (laughs) to try and survive the poisoning we were going through. But as it turns out, Allison, this is exactly how our society deals with problems. Welcome to our world. I just, it, it's bonkers, isn't it? That um, The way you expand it like that into everything. I mean, that, that's what we are doing as a society. And I think that I completely agree with what you're saying. You know, in, in order to have raw milk that is safe, you have to care about your animals. You have to treat them well. You have to watch them. You have to understand them. You have to see what's happening. And... When you pasteurise milk, you don't have to care anymore. You don't have to pay that depth of attention. You don't have to be so worried about it. You can then mistreat your animals, which is what we're doing to animals now, because you don't have to worry about your hygiene so much. You don't have to attend to it. When you're milking, you don't have to attend to hygiene that much. And frankly, as a person, I want to understand the root of something when it's going wrong you know I'm not going to go and just take right, drugs to right. knock me out if I can't sleep I want to understand what's going wrong and just with all those examples that you put out and as it happens with milk I want the animals to be treated well 
I don't want someone to have the right. possibility to overlook something that's going wrong with a herd of animals because they can, because they can pasteurize the milk. It's just crazy. There is literally no cleaner food that I can even imagine than raw milk properly and with just even the most basic of sanitation means taken from a cow. I mean, it is... Milk and eggs are like perfect. And honey, I don't even know. They're like perfect food. <laughs> but <clears throat> what's interesting, Allison, is that there was an alternative allowed um, instead of pasteurizing milk. And this was called a certified clean system of collection and delivery. So this approach, and again, you see, you see the word certified coming in because now mm -hmm. you can't see, you don't know. So you have to have some sort of a regulatory system to have any idea. I know Patrick spoke to this a little bit, to have any idea what is going on over there or, or a, a standard operating procedure, if you will. So this approach involved, um, this, this is taken from um, Nourish with Kristen, which is a blog, and she wrote an article about the untold story of milk. And this, so this is found in both the Untold okay. Story of Milk book and on Kristen's blog. Um, she said, this approach involved cleanliness, quality, and accountability. To become certified clean, dairymen would enter into a contract with the newly formed American Association of Medical Milk Commissions. They had groundbreaking ideas like wiping teats before and after milking, washing hands, sterilizing milk utensils, assuring freshness and submitting it to inspection. So Allison, as you can see, the fact that these simple things weren't happening, yeah. I don't know if you've ever seen a cow um, where her udders hang down. And if a cow is standing in mud mm. or standing in feces because yeah. she's not allowed to move, that gets on her teats. And mm. people weren't even washing those before they milked them. Because you just oh. cook the milk. <clears throat> what does pasteurization do to milk and why do we even care, Allison? This is this is kind of the crux of the, the point now. So yeah. we understand how raw milk comes out fairly perfect. We understand that um, the process of abusive and extractive raising of milk can, can now produce a unhealthy milk and then people pasteurized it to kill the microbes. Why would you want milk that was not pasteurized? Um, there is a, a quote where... <clears throat> A doctor said back, I don't know, maybe in the 1800s, I think it was, said raw milk not pasteurized was observed to cure scurvy. It's interesting that pasteurized milk didn't. Milk has calcium in it and studies, there's multiple studies, which you can find them cited on realmilk.com. Mm -hmm. They found longer and denser bones with raw milk. Um, the, fo the folate carrier protein is inactivated during pasteurization. Vitamin B12 binding protein is inactivated by pasteurization. Vitamin B6 is very poorly absorbed after pasteurization. The vitamin A is degraded as well. It's not just the vitamin A, but the heat-sensitive beta-lactoglobulin in milk, which our digestive tract uses to absorb the vitamin A, this is also degraded. Vitamin D, the pasteurization cuts our absorption in half. So you'll notice that a lot of milk sold in stores is supplemented. They have to yeah. put artificial vitamin A and D back in to the milk. But what's interesting is that artificial vitamin A and D aren't as good for you mm. as the real deal. 
Um, lactoferrin, which contributes to iron assimilation, that's destroyed by pasteurization. So you're supposed to be getting lactoferrin and iron out of your milk. Now you might still be getting the iron, but you're not assimilating it. Yeah. You see how that's a problem. And this is why children on pasteurized milk, people have noted that they tend to anemia. And then minerals, um, Sally says, um, bound to proteins such as calcium, minerals bound to proteins such as calcium and iodine that are inactivated by pasteurization. Raw milk contains the bifidus factor, which encourage lactobacilli growth in the gut lactobacilli enhance mineral absorption. Then vitamin B2 riboflavin is completely destroyed by pasteurization. And <clears throat> what was once our perfect food that came as the, could could not be a better engineered food with everything you needed and all the companions to absorb it, now they're largely destroyed. It's a completely the different customers, food. It just is. <laughs> yeah. It's not even the same thing. Um, customers preferred the certified clean milk, wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> like I would. So it would certainly have been a product that was more similar to what people grew up with. But what's interesting is certified clean proved to be more expensive than pasteurization. Mm. Obviously. Yeah. So heavily funded public campaigns began re-educating the public with promises of scientific progress and methods they could trust. Mm. And that's, again, nourished with Kristen. That was a quote from her, and she sourced mm. that from the Untold Story of Milk as well. Mm. So I find this so fascinating, Allison, that in order to sway public opinion, the industry put on an advertising campaign with celebrity endorsements, and this was all paid for with government funding. How is the government funding who's going to make money off of milk? The American public had to be convinced that cheaply produced, sick, tainted, cooked milk was better than clean, living, raw milk. 1937 is the year that that marketing campaign okay. was initiated. And this campaign has never ended and it continues to this day. Gosh. Yeah. So it, here's an interesting fun fact as we come to the end of mm. this. <clears throat> There's You and I both know that there could be a lot more said here. But um, what year did the FDA pass regulation in the U.S. that all milk in all 50 states must be pasteurized? Hmm. It, it was 1987, the year I was born. It is not that long ago. That is really not long ago. <laughs> this is fairly recent. That's amazing. The, you think that, you know, everyone who, well, certainly me, born before that year, yeah. Knew, yeah. didn't really yeah. know that raw milk even existed until I found nourishing traditions. You know, I just thought, How well, wild is that? I wouldn't want to eat that. And, and yet it was only, you know, I was 12 when that happened. It was only, yeah, it was only I've, a few, I've said it before. A few decades ago. Yeah. I said it before Gosh. on this podcast that I don't think there is anybody more brilliant at marketing than the people in these food marketing campaigns. I think food and pharmaceutical, yeah, food and pharmaceutical marketing campaigns are the most powerful in the world. Not only do they drive the biggest industries in the world, especially the pharmaceuticals being the largest industry in the entire globe, with multi-trillion dollars per year. But <clears throat> the, the fact that the average person on the street will say, is raw milk safe? If you yeah. mention it, yeah. that shows you 
how effectively, just in my lifetime, but certainly in the last 100 years, this campaign has been against a perfect food that we've been drinking for provably thousands of years. And I just want to say, all that. It's, it's the same with lard. <laughs> you know, when you when you say to anyone, right. well, doesn't, isn't, isn't lard going to raise my cholesterol and, and give me a heart attack? But people have been eating lard <laughs> for thousands of years. But the Absolutely. government and the marketing companies have convinced people that other fats are better for them. Um, and I think, yeah. you know, the fact that it was only 1987, I think about... Those few decades compared to the rest of history. And I know that, you know, I didn't have any exposure to raw meat when I was a kid, but I've talked to people who did. And I think about um, other cultures from um, not from Western Europe here. And Payal, who um, is the the genius behind Kobo Fermentary, she told me about how when she used to go to her nans when she was a girl she's only about the same age as me and um, she grew up in India and her nan was a fermenting genius with all the kind of you know the produce that they had there and how they used to bring the cow to her nan's house the front door and ring on the doorbell and basically say do you want some milk and they would milk the cow there for her on her doorstep and give her the milk and then she'd go away and make some amazing you know Indian ferment mm. drink with it and and that wasn't that yeah. long ago you know that was only a few decades no. ago no. and yet I did some research on in on the regulations of milk in Europe you know before mm. we started talking and because I'm in my bubble where I've been eating this way we've been eating this way for for a long right. time now right. and yet I was faced with what the normal world thinks about raw milk when I found these, um, you know, just documents that I wanted to read and see what the legislation was, you know, videos of people saying how terrible it is. And, and, and I'd kind of <laughs> forgotten how vehement everyone is about this sort of, it was almost like it's marketed as some weirdo thing that some people like. Right. But right. Yeah, before 1987... Just a few short generations ago, it was uh-huh. how milk had always been drunk forever. Uh-huh. Just crazy. Yeah. Let me talk about the situation oh. in Europe a little bit more because it's different yeah, tell us. to the situation in America. And I alluded right. to that when I said, you know, when I first um, <laughs> found nourishing traditions, I was like, what, really? So in, <laughs> in England and Wales and Northern Ireland, um, raw milk is legal there's no problems at all with it, but you can only sell it directly if you're a farmer. So you will not see it in a supermarket. You will not see it in a sh- you know a farm store or anything like that. You can only sell it online to people or in person directly to them. And you know when we lived in the UK, I bought raw milk from two wonderful suppliers. One was um, a cow milk, which we used to buy online. And the other one was uh, goat milk, which we used to have. The, the lady who rang the goat farm used to um, come and deliver the milk to us once every couple of weeks, and then we'd stock the freezer with it. And we used that um, raw goat's milk to make the Western Price baby formula to feed Gabriel after he was 11 weeks old when I couldn't produce enough milk for him anymore. And, I mean, just there is nothing like the issues 
in England that there are for you in the States. The farmers themselves do have to have inspections twice a year. And I imagine those are stressful for them, you know, because, right. you know, their entire livelihood, like you said, they're the small farmer. They're not, they haven't got anyone right. backing them up. They're not going to no, have anyone no. come to their rescue if something goes wrong. And raw um, milk farms have been shut down in, in the UK because of those inspections. So they do have to maintain extremely high hygiene standards. It's different in yeah. Scotland, where in Scotland it's completely illegal. In the EU, which of course the UK isn't part of anymore, but I'm in the right. EU living in Italy, um, the EU allows each member state that's part of it to make their own decisions on whether raw milk should be legal or illegal in their country. And in Italy, the most kind of obvious way you can find raw milk is through vending machines. And That's I think so funny. that um, Charlie talked about these in Italy and Slovakia when we did the interview yes. with her cooking ancestrally in a van and she travelled round. And there are many, many vending machines in Italy. There's um, a site called milkmaps.com, I think, which lists them all by province. And those are related to one farm only. And that farm fills up the vending machine with their raw milk every day. If it's not sold by the end of the day, it has wow. to be taken out and new stuff is put in. And those um, yeah. machines and the farms are tested regularly. But you can I go brilliant. And, and buy them. I think they have to have a sticker on that says advised that you boil it before use um that's the kind of one concession to it but also we've bought we've i've never seen a vending machine because there's not one near us and we don't have a car so we don't go around much um but i've bought raw milk directly from farms in various places that i've lived in italy um directly you know um i've never seen it anywhere that's not a direct sale um right but it it's not the same situation as it is for you in the US. You know, there's not been this governmental right. ban of it. it. It's a space left open for member states and or people to make their own decisions. Although when you read or look at any governmental literature about it, it is absolutely loaded with do not do this all over it. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it's absolutely yeah, it, intense. It, it's a it's a shock to it was a shock to me to to realise how difficult it is for people to get raw milk in the states. You know, it's yeah. different here. Thir Thirteen states. It's kind of like the EU, where we let states make dif different decisions. Okay. And then there's federal things as well. So. 13 states allow the sale of raw milk in stores. Washington is one of those, but it's hard to get in and not many stores carry it. It's usually just I little see. boutique health stores. Um, <clears throat> 17 states allow on-farm sales. Eight states offer herd shares, okay. which is what we had in Virginia, and you can read that in my blog. And then mm -hmm. 20 states prohibit the sale of raw milk for human consumption. Some of the states that we said allow the sale of it only allow it for the sale of pets. And if... in most of the time, and in Washington, it's this way, if you're selling it for pets, it has to be dyed black and it has to be licensed. Yeah. What? Yep. You can sell raw milk for pets, but because people are like, ah, I'll buy it for my pet and I'll drink it myself. Yeah. They yeah, said you I have see. to dye it black. Okay. Um, if people are trying to find. Yeah, that's this is important. Um, raw milk. Yeah. Go to realmilk.com. 
Sally Fallon and her team have built that website and there's a real milk finder, like a map. Um, contact your Weston A. Price Foundation chapter leader, mm-hmm. which you can find by going to the Weston A. Price Foundation <laughs> website. Really grateful to them for all the great stuff they put out, resources for us all. Um, for the U.S., you can look localharvest.com. Mm-hmm. And largely, you can also find, it might need to be word of mouth. Yeah. Um, of the many raw milk sources I've had over the t- over the years, only two of them were strictly legal and licensed ones. The other ones were just word of mouth. Mm-hmm. And the wait list on cow shares and raw milk sources is often quite long. Um, and keep putting pressure on, as the consumer, you have the power lobbyists and marketers lose their power if nobody buys their product and they do bend to public pressure, public opinion. Politicians always do. Parties change their stance all the time on things because of public pressure, right? Like this is how we can just keep putting the heat on. And remember, it is legal to drink milk in all 50 states. It's just not legal to sell it. Okay. Drugs, ironically, are illegal to buy or sell or even possess or even have in your bloodstream. You can't even just sit in your backyard and make methamphetamines for yourself and just enjoy them and, you know, cook yourself into oblivion. You know, even that's illegal, bizarrely. But um, raw milk, yeah, you can have a cow and you can sit there and drink the milk all day long and feed it to your kids and it's not illegal. So the U.S., I'll just close by saying to remember Mm. for the U.S., the U.S. Food and Drug Administration bans anyone from selling or distributing unpasteurized milk for human consumption via interstate commerce, that is to say across state lines. Mm-hmm. But there is no ban on actually consuming raw milk and raw milk products. Mm. So crazy. I'll put a ton more resources in the Thank show you. notes because there's Thank a lot more that could be so said. Much, but people Andrea, can dive your deep. incredible knowledge and passion around it. I have learned a lot that I didn't know. And Leah, like you said, we put... We'll put stuff in the show notes. Awesome. And when you come What's visit me in Italy, awesome? we'll go find one of those um, vending machines and yeah. get some milk. <laughs> I just need a picture of it. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Awesome. Thank you ever so much. All right, Alison. Have a good morning. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to continue the conversation. Come find us on Instagram, Andrea's at Farm and Hearth and Allison's at Ancestral underscore Kitchen. Until next time, we both wish you much fun exploration and satisfaction in and out of the kitchen.